Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm really excited to be here on this episode with Scott Spence, one of the community leaders for the Svelte London Meetup and an ambassador for the Svelte community. How's it going, Scott? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me here, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. I'm excited. So I like to start every episode, and you may have heard this, by asking people their origin stories. I find it fascinating where people came from and how they got into tech. So Sure. What's your sort of like superhero origin story? It's the dullest origin story ever. So um, recently transitioned into web development. I've been a professional web developer now since 2018, March 2018. So of course, five years. And before that, I was like a VBA analyst developer. That was the, the sort of title. If you look at my CV, it says I'm a technical project manager. Basically, what we did there is we would help out parts of the bank. I worked for one of the big three banks in the UK, and we just helped them automate stuff. So I sort of moved into that role prior to actually having like a proper developer title. I was like an office clerk, and we had to do like bank card statements, credit card statements for expenses and stuff. And my manager at the time made a macro just to get this CSV file from SAP, I think it was. And to put it into a report, and then we could just go and ask people to sign it off. And I sort of picked up on that, realized that I could, you know, half my workload by automating stuff. And that was it. I was hooked from sort of that point onwards. And I did that for quite a while. I was from for about, well, I started with a bank in 2001, I think. I left in 2010. So a good 10 years. I did other roles after that as well. Like, so like a senior level, I was on trading floor for Fidelity. I'm sure you're aware of who they are. I didn't really know who they yeah. were, been in the UK, but I found out they were quite, quite a big bank. So after leaving Fidelity, this is around 2014, I started to go contracting. And I, I did it for nearly a year, nearly two years. And I noticed the market was sort of drying up with those sort of roles. Everything was like, this is around the time Office 365 came out. A lot of stuff was moving to the browser. So I was like, okay, need to do browser stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, to start getting into web development, I did go down the Python path briefly and looked into like automating Excel with Python because that's a thing. Um, but like the whole making a website thing at the time, I didn't find it great. I can't remember what framework it was, but it was just folders on folders of folders of nested folders. And I didn't really understand what was going on. And so I was looking around at the time, sort of just discovered Twitter um, and was looking around on there. And I found this guy called Quincy Larson. And if you don't know who Quincy Larson is, he's the guy who, who founded Free Code Camp. But there was, I started reading his blogs and there's one blog post in particular, which just the upshot of the, the post was bet on JavaScript because it's everywhere and in everything, quite literally. So not quite literally, but figuratively. So I decided to you know, start looking into JavaScript. And that's where I discovered Free Code Camp, which is a great curriculum. It's come on, you know, it was 2016 when I started looking into it, I think 2017. And it's just come on leaps and bounds since then. So for anyone looking to get into, into web development, that's a good bet is what I'd say for that. And then there's also another 
community project called Chingu, Chingu Collabs. And that gives you your real world experience of working on a team of other developers. So, you know, after doing my free co-camp, I can't remember what they're called now, examinations, I think I just got past the front end basics. And then I, I just started moving out into doing my own thing. And then I discovered Chingu. And it was from working with a team of other developers. We had like a project on GitHub and we were all managing pull requests. I think I was nominated PM for it. It was just moving stuff around on the campaign board. Um, but working with other people on there was really what gave me the, the confidence to start applying for roles. And yeah, that's when I got my first role as like a front-end developer for like a government contractor in the UK here, Zazi. And they dealt with digital transformation for government. And I was with them for not long, about six months in, in, in total, and quickly moved on to another role, an advertising agency. Things were, it was still an agency, but the, the pace of creating projects was a lot quicker. There's a lot more varied work in there, and I, I really enjoyed that side of it. And yeah, I mean, I was at Kamarama, that was the name of the agency. They did like a lot of popular adverts over here in the UK, but I was with them for nearly three years. And you know, midway through the pandemic, I uh, snagged a role as a developer advocate at uh, Graph CMS, mm-hmm. um, who are now High Graph and was with, with them for 18 months nearly. So that's like a chronological order of my sort of career. Yeah. But the bits in between that, there's quite a lot in there. So for me to transition from like a VBA developer over into like a web developer, it wasn't, you know, an overnight thing. It was, it took a long time. It took, yeah. <laughs> it took a really long time for me to, you know, uh, really grok what was going on. So I would say JavaScript, you know, can feel similar to VBA, mm-hmm. but it's still very different having to deal with, you know, browser APIs and, and things like that. So I put in a lot of time while I was contracting. So I'd get up super early, study for two or three hours before actually going to do my day job. And then, you know, I've got a family, so I couldn't really do it at time wasn't really a thing. So I got into the habit of waking up really early of the morning just to, to get in, just to, you know, do the reps basically. So yeah. that was, how long did that take me? It took me from uh, end of 2016, I think I started learning. So from 2016 to 2018, you know, whilst holding down a job and applying along the way, but it was really working with Chingu and like the other team of developers where it's like, yeah, I can do this. So what I would say is don't wait. If, you, if you're going to start applying, there's never going to be the sort of perfect time. You know, if, if you keep waiting, then, you know, you could be waiting an awful long time. And I, I think I did wait too long before I started applying because a lot of the uh, skills and, you know, working with other develop like more skilled developers is really where you sort of uh, start to you pick up pace with, you know, learning stuff. So, yeah. Cool. You know, I hadn't heard of Chingu before, but I'm like looking it up in the background here. It's a really cool concept. It is, yeah. Can you explain it to people and maybe talk a little bit about like what that gave you beyond what you could do on your own, right? Because like you did all this learning on your own. You were doing free code camp stuff. Like you, know, you were doing some level of coding in your job, but like what was it about Chingu and like how did it work to get you to that next level? Okay, so while I was doing Chingu, I was also doing like a community like challenge, which I heard via Free Code Camp, and it's called 100 Days of Code. And it's basically this thing like about putting in the repetitions of doing, I think the challenge was to do an hour of coding each day for 100 days. And, you know, you'd share your progress with other people, 
on Twitter, usually under the hashtag, which is a bit of a spam fest at the moment now. But it was a really good like community of people. We'd all help each other out and stuff. And I think that is where I got to hear about Chingu as well. So Chingu is, they have like cohorts and they, they were running quite regularly, but I think they've tightened up on how they do it now. So I think they run them every quarter, I think maybe. And you have applicants who come in. And I'm not sure if there's some form of application you have to go through, but I think the reason why they do that is just to see the commitment from the person who's trying to take this on. Because, excuse me, in essence, you'll be working with a team of two to three other developers, I think. And you get paired up with them to work on project. And when I did it, the, the project was a project of your choosing, technology of your choosing, and you just plan it out. We, we used like the Kanban boards in GitHub at the time. And you just put in your, you know, your epics, I guess, and then smaller issues inside of that. And then you just work through them with the team. And it gets you really used to using like a source control management platform like GitHub. Um, other people use other platforms as well, like uh, GitLab. So it does get you used to working with in a team of other developers. So you'd put on the like the branch settings on the repo, so you couldn't merge your own pull requests and stuff like that. So they had to go through a review process, and that's where you get the valuable feedback from your colleagues. Who's like, you know, I don't think this is how this should be done. How about doing it this way? And then that's like, aha, you know. So you get that that feedback loop. As, as you would do in a normal team doing like uh, code reviews. So that's, that, like I said, that was invaluable to me. And I think Marina Beltisha, I think she was one of my colleagues and she really helped, she really gave me the confidence to, you know, start plugging away at job applications and stuff. So very thankful to her. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like having a project and having other people to work with is such a powerful thing when you're learning. We yeah. see that all the time at hackathons where, you know, even people who are like in computer science programs often have never built something on their own, right? And so there's this huge gap between understanding some of the concepts, maybe understanding some of how it all works and actually applying it, right? And yeah. I, I love the sound of that program. It sounds really, really cool. We do some similar programs at MLH too. Yeah. So I'm curious, where did the Svelte you know, stuff come into play, right? Because I know you're super involved with that community and uh -huh. you know, create a ton of content around it now. So yeah. how did you first get exposed to that? So I was on the Gatsby train. So I, from around, 20, well, from around 2018, from when I started my first web dev job, because my Chingu project was actually in Gatsby as well. I was very involved with that. And you know, it uses GraphQL for its uh, like accessing data. So I was very familiar with these sort of modern concepts and how to use it. And I did use it for a long time. And there were several revisions within, you know, me having my blog with, I don't know, probably a hundred posts on it up, up until then. And I think there was a big release, like version two. So it was probably me not doing something I should have been doing with the upgrade path. I guess be a really good if there is like breaking changes they usually re like release a code mod and this will like rewrite parts of your code which you know are breaking in the latest release so they're always really good with those sort of things but the project was just really slow just really chugged when i was running the development server and the thing with gatsby if no one is familiar with it it's um it basically compiles to static html css and javascript but because it's like a, a react meta framework you still have to ship a very large JavaScript bundle to the browser 
to rehydrate. I said that in air quotes, which uh, basically means anything which is like interactive needs to be sent down the wire to the client to get turned into these components for you. But anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. How I got into Svelte was I was basically looking around for something else, which was faster. And this was around 2020, I believe, or 2021. I never get the timelines right because after sort of 2019, everything's just like flat. Yeah, it took 10 years. <laughs> but I was looking around and I was aware of Svelte that it was a component framework, but not like a meta framework. So I did some playing around with components with it, but didn't really look too much more into it until I think it was around December of that year, 2020. And there was an announcement from Rich because I understood there was a frame, like a meta framework, which is basically, which is built on top of a framework. So meta frameworks, popular ones are Next.js, which is built on top of React, uh, Gatsby as well, which is built on top of React, Nuxt, which is built on top of Vue. Trying to think of other other ones as examples, but uh, you get the point. It adds additional sort of functionality on top of the, the existing framework. So I was aware of Sapper, which basically did your routing for you and things like that. And I was looking into it and then there was an announcement from Rich Harris around Christmas of that year. And he said, oh, I guess you're all expecting the V1 release of Sapper. I'm going to tell you the V1 release of Sapper is, and there's a drum roll. And he said, never. And then he announced SvelteKit. And SvelteKit, I was just blown away. He gave us a demo. And I think at the time it was using Snowpack. Uh, he now uses Vite, Vite. And it was super fast. And I just couldn't believe how quickly stuff was rendering to the page. And he actually set up his VS Code to autosave. So he was actually typing changes in the markup and it was just rendering straight onto the screen. And uh, that's what I do now with, with my VS Code setup because it's so fast. It, you, know, you get instant feedback. So that's really cool. And I was like, wow, I've got to try this. And I discovered there's a package by a guy called Penguin who's really involved with the Svelte community. He also works for the AI company Hugging Face. He released a package called MDSVEX, which was the equivalent to MDX in, in Gatsby, which is what I was using. And I had a lot of MDX components, so I needed to be able to you know, lift and drop these. Yeah. And it did that perfectly. So if anyone is unaware of what MDX is, it's basically allows you to use React components in your Markdown files. So this was popularized in Gatsby a while back, and you can now use it in Next.js and uh, other frameworks as well. But the Svelte implementation was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. So I just moved everything over to there, and I was like, wow, I am sold on this framework. And at the time, when I was with GraphCMS, they were asking me to make loads of content on it. And I was like, this is great. I'm actually learning about stuff and just documenting as I go along. So it was really good. And then from there, I don't want to work with anything else. I know it sounds really snobby, um, <laughs> but I mean, it's if you find good, something that you like, you know, go deep. It's such a good experience that I, um, you know, I can still read React code and understand what's going on. If someone asked me to do something in React, though, I, I would, but I'd be like, oh, <laughs> be really like do it really begrudgingly because I know I'm not sure if you've heard the stats and all the marketing stuff, but there is a lot less code with Svelte as compared to like, React, let's say. I've done talks where I've just, you know, compared the typical button component in React and a typical button component in Svelte. And I try to be as fair as possible, but it is just a lot. Rich Harris, the guy who creates Svelte and, you know, co-created SvelteKit, he says it's around 40% less code. Um, wow. But my, 
my friend uh, Chris Ellis speaks quite regularly at the London Meetup. Says, you know, ninety nine percent statistics are made up on the spot as well. But it, <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot less code, and it's a lot more succinct to read. So, I mean, if you want to talk about Svelte, I could talk about that as well. So, yeah, cool. what makes it different? What makes Svelte different from other frameworks is that. Svelte is a compiler, so like uh, Ember, um, which I think of other, I think Quick is a compiler as well now. Yeah, I think so. Um, but this means that it compiles your code up front. Now, don't ask me about how it does it and what it does. I know that it goes into the compiler and out the other end comes, you know, markup the browser can understand. So HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. If you actually go to the Svelte REPL, you can go to like, just go to svelte.dev and go to the tutorial. And basically everything you want to learn about Svelte is in that tutorial. It's fantastic. But there's also a couple of tabs over to where the output is. And you can see, you know, the JavaScript being output. And it's readable, which is really good. And the other thing with a compiler is that you're only ever shipping the minimum subset of features you want that are in that project. Whereas with you know something else, everything else gets sent with that bundle because it might need it. With Svelte, if you're not using animations or transitions, they don't get shipped. So it's really lean in that respect. The other thing about Svelte is if you haven't seen it, if you're coming from like a vanilla HTML and JavaScript world, the code looks really familiar because the markup, like the anatomy of a Svelte file is you have your script tags at the top, your markup for your HTML elements, and then style tags at the bottom. So it's pretty much how you would do a HTML, like a vanilla HTML file. And that's the thing as well. Anything in the HTML spec is going to be valid in SvelteKit because SvelteKit is a superset of HTML. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like gone down the React rabbit hole many times. And (laughs) sometimes it feels unnecessarily complex, right? I'll have to check out Svelte. That's really cool. So I'm curious, you know, when you started out Graph CMS and you, you started to do Svelte content, right? You know, at that point in your career, you were still pretty pretty green, right? You were pretty, pretty yeah. new as a full-time programmer. Um, what were some of the things that you started to sort of like, you know, learn as you created content to teach other people about this new framework? Like, what did that cycle look like for you where you're like learning it, you're creating the content, and then you're actually like involved in the development of it in some way. You get a lot closer to the browser APIs because it is you know, very close to like the holy trinity of web development is what they call it, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It's so close. I mean, it literally you know, uses all the browser APIs. So you get a lot more familiar with them. Whereas with React and you know, other frameworks uh, like that, a lot of that stuff is abstracted away. So there's always, like if you have your forms with React, you have to sort of prevent default and then go off and do your JavaScript stuff. With SvelteKit, you can actually go off and do that on the server via a post request. And you know you could have, we could get into the differences between Svelte and SvelteKit. I think I highlighted it earlier, but SvelteKit is basically like your full stack framework. So you get both client and server side code you can run. So with using forms in SvelteKit, you could, you know, use, there's an enhanced directive, which means you can do all of your form handling on the server. So you could pretty much use your Svelte project without JavaScript. Not that I'm recommending it, but (laughs) you can do that. So that, I mean, I've only, you know, over the last 
I don't know, four or five months, started getting real comfortable with that. When I was sort of, like I said, like when I was going through the material, I did find that it's, you know, very close to the browser. And um, speaking to other React developers who have tried Svelte, they do say like my HTML uh, knowledge has atrophied because of the abstractions with other frameworks. I won't keep pointing at React, but, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it is like the major player. So, but yeah, I mean, there was that. There was really good stuff with data binding, you know, two-way data binding. A lot of people are a bit cautious about that. But there's really, you know, cool stuff uh, you can do with things like that in Svelte. And yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed all of that part. And this isn't to say I was just purely the Svelte guy. I mean, I was the expert, I say in quotation marks, because I was the only person in the company that knew it. But um, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was also, you know, doing a lot of educational videos on other example code bases. So this isn't to say I was just focused on Svelte fully at the time. You know, I was doing walkthroughs of other code, you know, how to use the product with other frameworks, other technologies as well. So it was really good. Really sort of helped me with my, my talking and making videos and my video editing skills just went through the roof after that because I didn't know how much actually you needed to go into it at the time. But there's quite a lot that goes into editing videos. Like, like what? Blow sips, pauses. I learned not to touch the mouse in between, you know, looking at notes before going back to the screen, stuff like that. And just making sure you take your time because, you know, if you have a long pause in a video, you can just cut it out. So that's a good thing. But if you do it a lot, then there's a lot of editing to do. (laughs) And it can look Um, choppy. That's the thing as well. So usually if it's like an educational video, I don't like to have me in the background because I do fidget, as you can probably tell, moving about a lot. So, you know, me jumping around on sections of the screen. So, yeah, for me, if I'm recording a video, long pauses, don't move the mouse a lot in case you're actually trying to point something out. And then you can just come back and take it all out in the edit. There's, there's a guy called Dave Sedia, I think his name is. And he made a bit of software called Recut, which will basically drop your video into it and it will take out all of the silence. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really handy. Unless there's a bit, you know, where you're just showing stuff. You can, like, you know, choose to not have it taken out stuff. It's a really good, really good bit of kit. Very much recommended. And I think that was made in Svelte and Rust. Oh, wow. Hmm. Even as a desktop app? Yeah, I think so. That's kind of cool. When you started to create those videos, what was sort of the learning curve in educating other developers about these different frameworks? Like, I know you mentioned you utilized a lot of content, right? Freed CoCam and stuff like that. But what was your own learning curve in being a teacher? Explaining things how I understand them is always good. I mean, there's a lot of assumed knowledge a lot of the time. And as educators, we are cursed, you know, have the curse of knowledge is the, the term for it. And I do find myself, you know, talking about stuff and thinking you know, this implied knowledge, which everyone has, which a lot of the time they don't. So I do find it important to go over things like that as well. Sometimes when I'm doing videos, I have like a specific setup. I have like lots of aliases on my terminal just because I don't like to type lots. And I'm a terrible typer. I type all the time. So I have to explain things like that just to say, look, if you see me type in, you know, PR and then space and it suddenly becomes PMPM run, that's because it's an alias. And it is important to you know explain some things like that going forward, but it's a balance as well. So 
with like, I'm so happy I'm doing in-person workshops now because I get instant feedback of if someone gets it or if they need help, you know, with in-person ones, you can go up and help them as well, which is really good. So, you know, you have to find this sort of level at which, you know, you can sort of talk and then ask questions. Everyone get that? Everyone clear with that? Does it need further explanation? So that's, you know, really good tool as well to help me learn more as well. When I'm actually doing workshops, I've done, you know, I have to thank Grass CMS for putting me forward to do a workshop. I think it was at Jamstack Conf to begin with, and I've been doing loads ever since. But this was like pandemic time. So there'd be a pause. Everyone okay with that? And you're in like a Zoom chat or, you know, some virtual meeting and you're just looking at, you're looking at the chat. It's just tumbleweeds. No one says anything. So you're like, okay. I'll take that deafening silence is that everyone understands what we're talking about and we're going to move on. It's quite hard when, you know, if someone is in their own house, just trying to take something in, you know, they might be scared to ask or, you know, they might think it's a silly question. So a lot of the time you have to say, look, you know, you can use the chat, you can ask a question, you can, you know, I think with Zoom, you can, you know, ask privately Mm -hmm. to me. So I just want to make it that, that sort of part of it as approachable as possible. And I think the thing with Svelte mm. is that it is very approachable because it's very familiar. And I think that because of its, you know, similarity to, you know, plain HTML, uh, it's very approachable and very easy to take on. But with that, I'm not saying everyone should go out and learn Svelte. I mean, if you're interested in jumping into a framework, Svelte is a good one to get started with. But if you're looking to get hired, there's not a great deal of Svelte jobs out there. So Svelte will give you the, the tools, I would say, to get you started with other frameworks such as you know, React and, and Vue or you know, whatever jobs are in your market at the time. Those are the ones which you should be sort of training up for, I would say. Right. So in your work at Storyblock, right, obviously... You know, it's a headless CMS, right? So there's different implementations that the end user can have. What What are some of the things that you know you've been excited to kind of teach people with with Storyblock? With Storyblock, I mean, it's very approachable for developers, but uh, content is alike because Storyblock is based around atomic design principles, which means that you know everything is made up of what is it, building blocks, molecules, atoms. Are, I don't know the, the terminology, but basically this means that you can create your uh, CMS schema out of small reusable blocks, hence yep. the name Storyblock. And this means that with what gets passed off to the front end in whichever framework you're using, it's just a big JSON blob, which is uh, you know assembled on the SAS, on, on Storyblock, sent to the client. And we've got several SDKs, which you can use in all the, all the popular frameworks, and that will go off and use that information to build out your components. Obviously, on your client, you're going to need to say all of these components belong to Storyblock, and then the Storyblock SDK can use them, and then it will recreate them for you on on your client, on your front end. But I think the thing for me with Storyblock is seeing, uh, when you're doing demos to people, just seeing a reaction to people where you just say, this is all really flexible you could just move stuff around and do what you want with it and like just dragging and dropping stuff real time and seeing it update in the browser people are like oh that's really good the content editors love it because you want to change an image 
like traditional CMSs, if you want to have this, you know, in a different section of the document on the page, you'd have to get a developer involved to, to move the, the markup around. With Storyblock, you don't need to do that. So it increases velocity for both the development teams, but also the, you know, the content management teams as well. Yeah. It's funny. Like there were kind of a couple of things you said that I found really interesting. Like earlier you were talking about how with Spell, you sort of have a side-by-side view of making edits and seeing it live. And, you know, Storyblock does something similar, but even for non-developers. Have you ever seen the, it's this old Brett Victor talk about programming and like creating this like idealized programming environment where everything you type, you can see immediately. It's really cool. No, I'm not sure. I've not heard of Brett, who was it? Sorry, Brett Brett Lyons. Um, Brett Victor. Anyway, it's worth checking out because like, it's a very hypothetical talk, right? It's like, this is what an ideal programming environment could look like. But it reminds me a lot of what you're describing, where it's like, you can see what you're doing. You get that immediate feedback loop, which I feel like is really important, especially for people who are learning, because it's hard sometimes to like translate the abstract concepts into like what you're actually trying to do. Yeah. So yeah, I've always been very visual with how I develop. It's probably like a throwback from, you know, my VBA days where <laughs> with VBA, you just drag and drop stuff onto a form. And it's a, it's a bit more involved with web development, but, you know, essentially you're still putting rectangles on the screen. But yeah. that feedback loop is so important. And, you know, when you're trying to do things quickly, I mean, I'm not saying I move quickly <laughs> when I do stuff, but um, you need, like when I was doing stuff in Gatsby, you'd make a change and it would take the dev server about 30 seconds to catch up yeah. with Svelte kit it's, it's instantaneous so that you know that compounds every time you make a change and you look i mean that's how i'll work i'll do a change how's it look sort of work like that and with you know with felt it's instant so you know you get a good idea of where you're going with stuff mm-hmm. so yeah I mean, that's for me like the instant sort of feedback loop is is really important to learning yeah how do you work that kind of you know feedback and instant sort of gratification into a workshop that you're running? I have to do things step by step. So I've got a workshop at CityJS at the end of this month, 29th, I think it is. And it's a two-hour workshop. And that's like no time at all for a, for a workshop. So stuff has to get crammed in there quite quickly. But for a workshop, I like to try and just go through the standard sort of thing a developer would do when they're building out a project. So that is get some data from a remote data source somewhere and display it on a page. So for this one, I'm using, I'm going to do two. I'm going to do the dummy JSON API. And what's the tippy code one? There's another one, JSON placeholder. That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. The, so the dummy JSON one is a REST API. And the, the other one is also REST, but there's a GraphQL endpoint. So I'm going to do, I'm going to offer the participants, like choose your own adventure here. And I'm going to say we could do REST or we can do GraphQL. So with, with REST, you're just hitting an endpoint, bringing the information back. With GraphQL, there's an additional bit of overhead where we need to, you know, if no one's familiar with the Graphical Explorer, we need to explain that and go through that. But uh, what I've started, well, pretty much what I started in the beginning was create a Notion document with all the code samples, all the steps we're going to do. So, uh, and then I share that with the attendees. So look, you know, you can do this route this time, and then you can do another route another time, if you like. But I think it's important, so they've got 
that information to take away of them so they could follow those steps through. And if they get stuck, we could just refer to, to what's happening there. But <clears throat> sorry, there's a bit of a tangent. <laughs> Going back to the example would be getting information from an API. So how you would do it with React, let's say, is you'd, you'd go off, you'd make your fetch call, and then in your sort of response.then, you just console log out some information. With Svelte and SvelteKit, you can return the information. So there's a SvelteKit just reached in December, went version one. And there's quite a few changes before that. I could come on to that. But what I will say is that you can go off, get your data from your endpoint, and then pass that information to a page. And then this just comes in as a bit of, a bit of data. Um, with SvelteKit, you just accept it into the page as a data prop. And then you can just put that into a big pre-tag, and then you just get your, your API response on the page. So I think that's important. We, if you're doing it via like GraphQL, you say, this is the query here we're getting on, on the back end. So you run that, and then you get your, your data output in Graphical Explorer. And then you do the same in the front end, and basically you get the same data. So I like to say, you know, this is what we got on the back end. This is what we got on the front end. But, you know, we're not just going to display JSON data. We're going to then start looping through this information. We're going to start using conditionals to loop through certain parts of the data and, you know, flesh out the front end. So I think that's important as well. And also trying to explain concepts where I did go on a mini tangent there talking about SvelteKit going to V1 in December. There was a time when in SvelteKit, you could just say, you could have your folder structure. So a typical folder structure of a Svelte project is you have your source folder. In there, you have a lib. And then inside your lib folder, you can put your components. But then you also have a roots folder. Uh, so you go source roots. And then in your roots, you can say, like index.svelte, that would be your homepage. How you used to be able to do it was about.svelte, that would be your about page. And then you could basically go through and give all of your pages names. And then they would end up as roots in your SvelteKit project because the SvelteKit router was, you know, still is really good. Uh, just saying, identifying that's a page, we're going to render that. Around August last year, they decided that if people co-locate a component with a page, there's the possibility that the, the component could be treated as a page. So then the, the Svelte core team started doing, uh, you'd have a folder and then your folder would end up being the root. So you'd have a folder for your about page. Inside there, you'd have this notation. And I'm not going to repeat it much, but plus page.svelte would be a page component. If you want page server information, you'd say plus server dot svelte, uh, or sorry, plus It sounds really verbose, but it really gives you this separation of concerns of where the data is coming from. So you could have your data file, page.data, and then in there is where you get your, your initial information to go off to an endpoint, let's say, get your data, and then load that into the page. So there's, there's going to be a bit of explanation about that. Because I think last time I did a workshop was in November last year. And I wasn't sure if it happened at the time, but it's a really good way to, you know, separate out what data is coming from where. And a lot of people got mad when it happened. I thought it was great because you've got your separation of concerns, everything, you know, you know where to go to get certain bits of information. So that's good. It still confuses people. I get confused with it sometimes still. Everything now is a plus page you know, plus page 
.svel file plus page dot, you know, whatever. So if you've got a lot of pages open in VS Code, they say, everything is just plus page dot .svel. So it can get quite hard to distinguish what is where. But that's just text editor management thing rather yeah. than... But there's certain options you can set in VS Code for that. But overall, I think, you know, that part of it is great. But I need to, I'm sort of part way through the workshop. I've got like actual projects done, yep. but then the actual material I'm still writing up. So I need to have a bit of time, I think, just to go through these sort of concepts, just so everyone understands. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to need to do a Svelte workshop at some point now. I feel like it's, <laughs> you've piqued my interest uh, with, with how uh, you are. It'd be my pleasure. I absolutely love doing the workshop side of it. Yeah. I didn't think I'd enjoy it that much, but I, I really do like, you know, just sharing what I've learned. So. I really do find that, you know, I get a lot of, what's the word for it, job satisfaction out of that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's one part of the uh, what I do, which I really like. And also the, you know, the immediate feedback you get from people as well, especially in person, is really good. Yeah, totally. I love doing in-person workshops. So we only have a couple of minutes left here. I have a couple of final questions I like to ask folks before we go. Is there anything like thinking back on your own journey that you might change about how developers, you know, become developers today that's a bit of a very very big a, yeah 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 it's a bit of a deep question so personally i do hear a lot of people saying don't jump into a framework straight away if you're looking to get employed then absolutely you know if you feel that you can start working in it do it there's no barriers there's you know apart from like thought leaders and the influencers to say, you know, do this, don't do that. If you feel that you can do it and you'd get, get, you know, you'd get something out of it, absolutely do it. And I was on the HTML, CSS and JavaScript train, like, you know, the the vanilla stuff for for quite a while. And I realized um, that people, (laughs) there's not a great deal of jobs for that around. So then, you know, I was like, I have to get into React. And you know, they do complement each other as well. You'll find bits in a framework which you're unfamiliar with, and then this will help you, you know, there's bits which, you know, you'll pick up from learning one against the other. So that's always good. In my opinion, don't wait. Just get stuck in is is what I would say. I think that's good advice. I mean, once you learn one framework, it, it sort of lowers the barrier to entry for other ones as well. Yeah. The, the final question I always like to ask folks, which is another, you're going to love it. It's another big picture, like weird abstract question, but is there anyone that you like really look up to in the tech industry that you would love to just like take to lunch and pick their brain for a couple hours? Obviously there's a lot of people. There's all, all of the big influences. I mean, at the time when I first started out, Wes Boz released a course called JavaScript 30 and he's released another big one, JavaScript fundamentals or something and that guy is i mean that's what sort of gave me the inspiration to want to you know help other people as well start giving back uh, in that regard and he's just such a great teacher he really explains concepts um so i'd love to meet him if you go to scottspence.com scroll down to the bottom of the page there's a big list of people i want to meet in real life oh wow and, i didn't uh, notice that <laughs> wes is on there scott Talinsky's on there other people who helped me out a lot early on, Kent Dodds, um, any of the Egghead.io instructors, Chris Biscardi, he was he really helped me out with a lot of Gatsby stuff. Also Jason Langsdorf as well, he was developing mm-hmm. relations with Gatsby. So those guys, super cool, very approachable, and you know, really learned a lot from those people. 
That's awesome. This is a great list. I've never heard of this kind of list before, but I really love the concept. It's, it's Yeah, I feel like this question <laughs> could have fit right into that list already. <laughs> yeah, I stole that from a guy called Rafa, and he's got it inside. I saw it, I was like, going to steal this? I actually, it says on the site, I've stolen it from him. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> inspired by, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. But that's a really cool list. And on there as well, you want to meet me? You want to go on that list? Uh, there's a little button on there, so you can just click it, and uh, I'll open up a tweet, so you can tweet me out. And uh, get you on the list, and uh, you know I travel a fair bit, so I'll probably end up meeting in person one day. I love it. If you ever make it to New York, maybe I'll get on that list. But I would love to go to New York. It's not uh, too far. Nothing, nothing planned. Nothing planned. I was in Atlanta last year for Connectect. Uh, that was a, like Atlanta. a great conference. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for, for your time, uh, Scott. I really enjoyed our conversation. No Honestly, I'm leaving excited to try Spell and check out some of the stuff here. So you definitely. Uh, got me stoked about it but um thank you hit me up anytime i'll happily walk you through it anytime you need (laughs) i love it and folks who are listening i hope you enjoyed our conversation definitely you know like the episode and subscribe if you want to hear more thanks everyone and happy hacking thanks everyone bye-bye the state of developer education is brought to you by major league hacking to find out more about major league hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout-out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, Thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.